Thank you, Aaron and the rest of the musicians. Especially those last two songs, directing our attention forward, as Aaron said, is helpful. Helpful for my soul to be prodded to look forward to Christ, to be encouraged to be eager for that day. Well, words are important. One of Winston Churchill's many notable gifts was his use of the English language. For those of you familiar with the life of Winston Churchill, you know that any account of him generally includes the details that he had a way with words. Many of his speeches are memorable, and he's a great quote. Beginning in 1940, May of 1940, he employed his words in the trenches of wartime leadership. And basically, a steady stream of directives and missives constantly going out throughout his daily working hours. He dictated countless memos, the start of England's involvement, particularly his leadership of England's involvement in World War II. These countless memos were basically had a, a system that he devised that would direct those who would receive his instructions. According to biographer William Manchester, at the outset of his time, he told the war cabinet secretary that all directions emanating from him are to be made in writing. Any instruction not in writing was invalid. And he made labels that would indicate the response he expected to his directives. Green labels were affixed to memos that said, report in three days. A memo signed in red ink meant Churchill wanted action. And a memo signed in red ink and affixed with the maroon label, action this day, was the prime ministerial equivalent of a five-alarm fire. He had personal charge for nearly everything affecting the strategy of the war. And so he was intensely concerned that his directives be met with a proper reception. The directions were to be appraised as coming from the prime minister himself, and then in accordance with his directives, they were to be responded to accordingly. This anecdote from Churchill's life illustrates the importance of rightly receiving authoritative words. At Mission Road Bible Church, we willingly and gladly affirm that our lives are to be governed by the word of God. As we have said from up, from up here, and as is often recounted, Bible is in our church name. We teach our kids to sing the B-I-B-L-E. Our seminary motto is truth matters for life and ministry. Our mission of disciple making means that teaching the word of God is integral to our various avenues of ministry. An expository preaching of the word of God is the rudder that ultimately steers this body. But a subtle yet significant temptation exists for those of us who are in an environment where God's word is held in the highest regard. And that temptation is to leave God's word in the realm of information without actually appropriating it so that it becomes heart knowledge. That is, as has been said from this pulpit, to appreciate the truth without applying the truth. There is an acute, even, let me say this, spiritual life at stake difference between affirming truth and receiving it rightly, between fondness for God's word and receiving God's word as it should be received. 
Now, it's clear that we cannot rightly receive God's word if we aren't first able to affirm it. If we aren't fond of it or if we don't appreciate it, we can't receive it rightly. But true reception of God's word moves beyond initial appreciation and into the realm of appropriation. It must be appropriated in our lives to be a true reception. This is something that the staff, we wrestle with this. We discuss this regularly. Uh, We desire our teaching ministries to be excellent and our doctrine to be pure and rock solid. But just as much as those things, we want this church to be a resounding testimony of the teaching and doctrine that we hold dear. We don't merely want to affirm that we stand on the word of God. We want our lives to reveal that that affirmation holds true. In our time together this morning, I want you to consider with me whether or not the word of God is met with a proper reception in your life. Is the word of God met with a proper reception in your life? Receptivity to the truth should mark the lives of Christian men and women. And the church in Thessalonica was a church that was receptive to the truth. Their reception of the word of God filled the Apostle Paul's heart as he gives evidence, and we'll see in just a while. And it serves as an instructive example for us to evaluate whether or not we truly receive the word of God as it really is, the word of God. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles and find 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and in particular, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul made it to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And you can look in the back of your Bible, don't do it right now, at one of those maps that we never use. I actually did that this week. It was, it was fun. A uh, few of them were stuck together. But you, you can look at the, the, the missionary journey maps and you'll see Thessalonica on the map. He, he made it to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey and Luke provides an account, the historical account of his time there in Acts chapter 17. Starting back in in Philippi, Paul and Silas are in prison, they're beaten, then an earthquake happens, they're miraculously released, and the Philippian jailer is converted. And then the, the chief magistrates come and they beg them to leave the city. So they journey along the Ignatian Way and come to Thessalonica, where according to Paul's custom, they begin teaching in the city synagogue. Now God blessed their ministry there, and some Jews some God-fearing Gentiles and some prominent women, it says, became Christians. And then when we look at 1 Thessalonians in the beginning, we see that some pagan Gentiles believed as well. But in response to the budding ministry there, some of the Jews from the city incited a riot against the Christians. And they attempted to bring Paul and Silas out and bring them before the city authorities, and they couldn't find Paul and Silas, but instead brought Jason and some other believers who are eventually released. Paul and Silas escaped the city under the cover of darkness, and then they make their way to Berea, where they will again head to a synagogue, begin ministry afresh, before the opponents from Thessalonica, it tells us in Acts, make their way down to Berea, and then make trouble there for Paul and his associates. What's important to note from this history is that when Paul was in Thessalonica, many responded to the gospel that was proclaimed, and there was much hostility toward those who had embraced the gospel. 
Now, Paul left Silas and Timothy in Berea and headed on to Athens. And at some point, Timothy rejoins him in Athens, and then Paul sends him back to Thessalonica to find out how the new converts are doing. Paul, it tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians, he desperately wanted to know of their faith. They were persecuted. They were suffering. And Paul, like a, like a tender spiritual father, he wants to know how his spiritual children are doing. And so he sends Timothy to find out how the new converts are doing there in Thessalonica and to strengthen what remained of the church there, whatever he would find. And so Timothy brings his report back to Paul, and Paul, who is in Corinth, then writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. It's thought to be one of Paul's earliest, if not the earliest, epistle of his. So Paul is writing to this very new church to encourage their very new and yet growing faith. He writes to let them know of his thanks for their steadfast faith after getting the report from Timothy and evidently to respond to charges that were being levied against him by others. We don't know exactly what they are, but when you read 1 Thessalonians, you can tell that Paul is, is vindicating his ministry. Evidently, there were charges being raised against him. So in chapter one, Paul expresses his thanks to God for the election of the Thessalonian believers. It says that in verse four. And then he thanks God for the resulting evidences of their faith, verses six through 10. When he gets to chapter two, his attention turns to his own ministry. And now he, he vindicates his ministry to the Thessalonians by talking about the way Paul conducted himself in their midst, how he actually executed the ministry that had been entrusted to him by God. Paul's ministry was conducted with boldness supplied by God. It was conducted with the approval of God and it was conducted with a pure and honest message with sincere motives and sincere conduct. So Paul's greatest defense against whatever charges were levied against him, he says, just look at how we were when we were with you. Look at what we did, look at how we ministered. This was our conduct, this was the content of our ministry. And then in verse 13, he shifts his attention from his ministry back to the Thessalonians and their response. And he's going to then express thanks again for them and how they received the ministry that he had just been discussing in verses one through 12. As we come to verse 13, Paul's heart is full of thankfulness. And he's particularly thankful for the way that the Thessalonians believers received the truth. In them, in these believers, amidst much persecution, the word of God met with a fitting response. I'm gonna read verses 13 and 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter two. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. This morning, we're going to look at the example of the Thessalonians, their receptivity toward the truth, and then focus on specific application to us in the area of listening to the word of God, to listening to sermons. And we're gonna organize our look at these two verses around two marks of a fitting reception for the word of God. Two marks of a fitting reception for the word of God. The first mark is found in verse 13, and that is 
The word of God is received rightly when it is rightly appraised. The word of God is rightly appraised. Verse 13. Paul begins verse 13 by giving the reason and the content for his constant thanksgiving to God. For this reason actually points backwards, not forwards. It points back to the 12 verses where he articulates his ministry. And then overflowing from that description of ministry as the the cause for thanksgiving, then he transitions to actually what he's saying he's thankful for to God. He's thankful that they received the word the right way. So that expresses the substance of what he's thankful for. Specifically, he is continually thankful about their response to the word he preached. When Paul and his fellow workers proclaimed the gospel in Thessalonica, those whom God had chosen, again, verse four in chapter one, they received and accepted the word of God. Now, received and accepted in this verse, there are two words here and they're closely related. In the NASB, they're translated as received, the first one, and then the second one is accepted. And that's helpful for us because it shows that there's a nuance here that Paul is, is wanting to get at. So this initial reception that, that when you received the word simply refers to when it, when it was delivered and when they received it. Straightforward. So prior to responding favorably and reverently to the word of God, they had to hear it. Right? They had to hear the word. And somebody had to give it to them. So Paul says, when you received it from us, basically when you heard the message that we delivered. So received refers to the actual reception of the information. Accepted refers to their approval of the teaching. So accepted refers to what they did with it in their reception. They received it. They approved it. They accepted it. They welcomed it, so to speak. So they received it, which is simply the mechanical description that they received, they heard the message, but they also accepted the message. And that's ultimately what Paul is thankful for. Accepted refers to their approval of the teaching as divine. They rightly appraised Paul's message. Now, what was the message? The word of God, Paul says, which you heard from us. Now, we get so familiar with these things. I found myself skipping right over that. And then he's like, wait a minute. Paul actually says the words he spoke from his human lips with his human tongue are the word of God. And so he tells them when, when, the word of God which you heard from us. The message the Thessalonians received and accepted was delivered by the apostle Paul and those who were with him. They didn't, they didn't hear God audibly. God didn't speak to them individually. He's saying, you heard the word of God? No, Paul says, look, the word of God which you heard from us. So what they received was the apostolic message that had been entrusted to Paul by God. And this message was a divine message. Listen to how he refers to his ministry and the ministry of the word through him in his time there. He calls it the gospel, chapter one, verse five, and chapter two, verse four. He calls it the word, chapter one, verse six. Chapter one, verse eight, he calls it the word of the Lord, In chapter two, verse two, verse eight, verse nine, he calls it the gospel of God. And then in verse 13, he calls it the word of God. All of those synonymous for Paul's apostolic message, what he took to the Thessalonians. Paul's words were authoritative words with an authority derived from God himself. As an apostle, what Paul spoke to the Thessalonians was God's very word. Now, to further emphasize the message's divine origin, he says what it's not. He says it was not the word of men. 
Their appraisal was that it was an authoritative word, but it was not an authority sourced in Paul. It was not an authority sourced in an important and intelligent and eloquent man. It was not the word of men. The gospel that Paul proclaimed in their midst was not a new man-centered philosophy. It was not a system of ideas that he had generated or come up with. It was not a mere opinion for their consideration. It was God's very word. To reject the message then, to not have rightly appraised it, would have not been the rejection of a word from a fellow creature in Paul. It would have been to reject the word of the creator. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter four. This distinction comes out again later when Paul actually starts giving very specific instructions concerning their lives. Chapter four, verse seven, he says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So after teaching on sexual sin and the need to be pure, listen to verse eight. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of God coming through Paul was to be appraised rightly as authoritative as it really was, a divine source, a divine word, an authoritative and binding word. Later, as he's exhorting them in how they're to live in light of the gospel, he says, don't reject what I'm saying. You're not rejecting mere man's words. You're rejecting God's words if you deny that, if you, if you live out of step with what he said. Look, if I tell somebody you should drink your coffee black, because that's the best way. Feel free. <laughs> you might have to meet with Dave, but feel free to reject my counsel as an opinion. As much as I'd like it to be binding and authoritative, that won't happen. But if I preach the gospel, God's very word, the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins, if I preach what scripture says about man's need for salvation. That's God's word. You, you can't, we can't reject scripture. We can't reject divine words and the divine message in the same way we can man's opinion. The Thessalonians heard a message by a man, but it was not a mere man's message. And their fitting reception is built upon the fact that they rightly appraised the proclaimed word of God as it really is, a divinely inspired and a divinely authoritative word from God himself. Now, there is no chance that an apostle is gonna walk through the doors of our church with, with a freshly inspired word for us to appraise. That's not gonna happen. In God's kind providence, even as Bob prayed, we have the inscripturated word of God right here in our possession, and it is just as inspired and just as authoritative as the message that the Thessalonians heard from Paul because we have the inscripturated apostolic message that was passed down. So for us, rightly appraising the word of God so that it can be met with a fitting reception begins with a robust bibliology. It begins with our view of scripture. But our need to rightly appraise and rightly receive the word of God is not limited to our reading of scripture. We also need to have a robust theology of preaching. Preaching and teaching of the word of God is to be rightly appraised as well. Look, in the history of the church, preaching and teaching is the mode by which the majority of Christians were exposed to the word of God. Just think back to the early church in what we have in scripture. What did Paul tell Timothy? 
Preach the word. The same word that Paul's telling the Thessalonians that they received rightly. Peter told those with speaking gifts to speak the oracles of God. Preaching communicates God's word. Sometimes it can make us a little uncomfortable. Listen to this. The second Helvetic confession states this. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now this does not imply that any time someone stands in this spot that their voice should be equated with the voice of God or that no matter what comes out, it's God's word simply because it is recognized as preaching or that a preacher has authority distinct from scripture. That's not what that confession is indicating. It's quite the opposite. A preacher's only authority is the scriptures. But listen to Kent Hughes who clarifies for us. Although the confession is a grand statement, he says it's a statement that can invite abuse because some preachers think that whenever they preach, they're preaching God's word and only an apostle could say that. But at the same time, it is gloriously true that when a preacher is faithful to the text and does careful exposition, insofar it is true to the word of God, God speaks. And very often his preaching is the very word of God. The preaching of God's word is not just a talk. It's not just a public oration. One reason for this is because of the content. The Bible is God's word. Another reason is because the Holy Spirit wields God's word to transform our lives. Something special is going on in the moment of preaching the word of God. And it is meant to be received rightly, rightly appraised. We should rightly appraise the word of God, which includes not only reading it, but rightly appraising the preaching that we hear. Paul's pastoral heart was filled to overflowing because the Thessalonians rightly appraised his proclamation of God's word for what it really was. As you get to the end of verse 13, he's gonna start bringing in the idea of appropriation. The end of verse 13 says, which also, that's referring to the word, performs its work in you who believe. This connection is very important. As further evidence that their appraisal was right, that their appraisal was accurate, Paul then reminds them that the word they appraised rightly was operating in their lives. It was operating in their hearts. It was producing life change. They didn't simply hear the word, affirm it as divine, and then get on with their business. As a result of their right appraisal of Paul's message, Paul's preaching, Paul's teaching of the word of God, their lives were radically changed. Listen to chapter one, verses six and seven. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. They became imitators of Paul in life and imitators of Christ himself in their manner of life. As such, that they were an example to the whole region of what it looked like to be a Christian. Listen to verse nine. The report that went out about the Thessalonians was that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. They turned to God from idols to serve the living God, to serve the true God and to wait for Christ. 
Their lives were radically changed because of the word that was at work in them. The angry mob in Thessalonica called the apostles in Acts 17, those who have upset the world. And the believers that received the word in Thessalonica are like exhibit A of the radical change that the word brought about in their world. Their lives were completely changed. Now in verse 14, after emphasizing that the word is at work in their lives, now he's gonna go on and describe the ultimate evidence that they had ultimately rightly appraised the word of God. The reason he knew they had accepted, they had approved, they had welcomed the word as divine is that they were willing to suffer for it. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. How did Paul know that the Thessalonians had rightly appraised the word of God? The responses that we just read, specifically then in verse 14, he says, the evidence of their steadfast faith in the midst of suffering. They were suffering for the word, and that was proof that they had rightly appraised it as divine. The second mark of a fitting reception for the word of God is one in which it is radically appropriated. The word of God is radically appropriated. If it's rightly appraised, it's radically appropriated. That's the connection Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. He knew that they had accepted it as it really was because of how they lived and specifically how they bore up under suffering. The apostolic message had come to the Thessalonians amidst much tribulation. Paul and Silas had to sneak out of town. Before they left, other believers had been rounded up and threatened with imprisonment. And when Paul left, it didn't subside, right? The, the, the angry mob, the, the folks that were angry about the word and what was happening with those who received it, they went on to Berea. They were, they were vigilant in their opposition. Here, Paul indicates that like their Christian brothers and sisters back in Judea, the Thessalonians were suffering persecution. Remember, almost from its inception, the church had experienced persecution beginning in Jerusalem. And the trend continued as the gospel spread from Judea outward. So like their Christian brethren in Judea, the Thessalonians were tested by the fiery trial of persecution. What's amazing is Paul says their endurance through that persecution, through those sufferings, actually proved that they had rightly received the word. Do you see that connection? He says, look, you didn't prove to be the rocky soil You didn't receive the word with apparent eagerness only to see it uprooted when affliction came. The fact that they bore under the suffering, under the persecution for the word's sake was proof of their right appraisal. It's so instructive to see how Paul's joy and thanksgiving for them is connected with their appropriation of the word of God in their lives. In our verses, he's thanking God that they truly received the word as it really is, and he says it's evidenced by their endurance and suffering. In chapter two, verse 19, he explains how badly he wanted to come to them because they're his glory and joy. He says, you are my glory and joy. One day, standing before Christ, the Thessalonian believers would be Paul's crown of exaltation. That would only be true if they bore fruit for continuing the faith. The only way that they would actually be the crown of exaltation is if their faith had proved to endure, if their faith proved to be legit, if 
gave evidence of a continuing faith after their initial appraisal. In chapter 3, verse 5, Paul shares the concern he had while away from them that Satan would tempt them, and Paul says, and render basically his labor in vain. Say, wow, what does that mean? Well, if they didn't appropriate the word, if temptation came, they abandoned, they fell away, the report from Timothy came back and said, they're all gone. They didn't endure. Paul says that would have given him the perspective that his labor was in vain. The appraisal would not have been fitting. It wouldn't have been a fitting reception for the word. That's this implication. But he says in verses seven and eight, he was comforted by news of their condition. What, what was that comfort? That they were standing firm in the Lord. That the word that they had appraised actually was enduring. That it was bearing fruit in their lives and they were bearing up under suffering. Paul says, we live he says, speaking figuratively, we live if we know that you stand in the faith. To put it in contemporary terms, Paul is not recounting in 1 Thessalonians that he's overjoyed because they liked his preaching. He's overjoyed because of the effective working of the word of God in their hearts as evidenced by their lives in, in the various circumstances they found themselves in, particularly suffering and hardship Paul was not encouraged merely that they appreciated what he had to say, not that they were merely willing to listen to him. He was encouraged by the fruit that was wrought in their hearts by the word of God. Without their turning from idols to the living God, without their endurance in affliction, without the report that they stood firm in the faith, Paul would not be thanking God in verse 13 that they had rightly received the word of God. And he would not be calling them the crown of his exaltation. Ultimately, spiritual fruit is the evidence that they were truly receptive to the word. The fruit of God's effective work in their lives was the ultimate evidence that, that they did give God's word a fitting reception, that they did respond to God's word and accept it as it really is, the word of God. Appropriation of the truth was the, was the ultimate proof was the ultimate test that they were truly receptive, that their appraisal of the word was accurate. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, one of the ways that these verses implicate us at MRBC, there's, there's, there's many ways. One of the ways is in how we respond to preaching and teaching. We're in a Bible church. Not only that, I know many of you appreciate the multitude of resources that are available in our world today. MP3s, live streaming, all kinds of things that we have access to to where we can take in truth. And so when we think about giving the word a fitting reception, it's not just when you're reading your Bible. It's when you're hearing the Bible taught. It's when you're exposing yourself to truth, which includes your sermons, if, even if you listen to 50 a week, which sounds extreme. But I once heard a friend say, that for eight hours a day, all day, while he did a particular job, all he did was listen to sermons. That's a lot of truth. Paul's instructions tell us that to rightly receive the word is to rightly appraise it, but also to rightly appropriate it, to radically appropriate it. So we live in a day with unparalleled access to, tr to truth. And as we mentioned at the outset, those who are accustomed to truth can find themselves being regularly confronted with it 
regularly sitting under it, regularly participating in various word ministries, Bible study, care group, but ultimately seeing very little spiritual fruit, ultimately seeing very little life change. We can become sermon aficionados. We accumulate for ourselves as much as we possibly can in terms of listening to truth. We may take in sermon after sermon, evaluate sermon after sermon, but if there's no life change, we need to step back and ask, are we actually receiving the word as it really is, the word of God? So how can we approach sermons, preaching and teaching in such a way that we give the word a fitting reception? This is a good opportunity for me to plug one of the books that is on our book list, so I'm gonna take that opportunity. Expository Listening is a very short book, a very helpful book, and it's on our book list, and it is geared at this very issue. How do we rightly receive the word of God? So I encourage that, I commend that to you. But kind of flowing from that, how can we, what are some practical things we need to think about? How can we approach the truth ministries in our lives at Mission Road Bible Church in such a way where we can emulate the, Thessal- the Thessalonians, where we can be, be those who give evidence that we've rightly appraised the word because it's radically appropriated in our lives. I won't spend much time here, but these, I just wanna break these down. Before the sermon, during the sermon, after the sermon. Before the sermon, Let's talk to one another. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but it's, it is interesting. There are physical preparations that you need to make in order to be able to rightly receive the word of God. What's the most obvious one? You have to be here, right? Preaching to the choir. You have to be here. And I, that's tough on March 3rd when there's snow on the ground. I don't mean any offense to the live streamers. <laughs> you have to be where the word is proclaimed, right? So you have to get yourself there. You have to be on time. You have to come ready. You have to be well rested if you're able. There are physical preparations to receiving the word of God. What about spiritual preparations? James 1, 19 through 25 provides a wonderful paradigm for the spiritual requirements to to receive the word of God. And we don't have time to look there, but I I want you to, to note that and go there and look. We need to have readiness which comes from a recognition of our need to hear the word. We've been confronted with this constantly in our study of Proverbs. It's just a barrage. You need wisdom. You need instruction. You need the commandments. You need to hear wisdom. True recognition of our need for truth will lead to a readiness to receive it. So before you come to hear word, before you go to Bible study, before you, you, even before you're coming to the word in in your personal study, do you recognize your need for it? Are you ready to receive it? Are you teachable? Are you humble? Who are you planning to listen for? Are you here to listen? Are you coming prepared to listen for your heart? What about during the sermon? How about during the sermon? How about when during our sitting under the preaching of God's word? How, what do we need to keep in mind in order to give it a fitting reception? I wanna read a quote from G.I. Packer. It stings a little bit, fair warning. Packer writes, where little is expected from sermons, little is received. 
Many moderns have never been taught to expect sermons to matter much, and so their habit at sermon time is to relax, settle back, and wait to see if anything the preacher says will catch their interest. A century ago, in Reformed circles in Britain, the regular question to a person coming from church was, how did she, he or she get on under the preaching of the word? This reflected the expectancy of which I'm speaking. Nowadays, however, on both sides of the Atlantic, the commoner question is, how did the preacher get on in his stated pulpit performance? And this shows how interest has shifted and the mental attitude has changed. It is now assumed that those who sit under the preaching are observers measuring the preacher's performance rather than participants waiting for the word of God. Many in our congregations do not know that there is any other way of listening to sermons than this way of detached passivity. And no one should be surprised to find that those who cultivate such passivity often dismiss preaching as an uneventful bore. Those who seek little find little. What is Packer saying? Packer's saying when we come, and I'm including myself here, when we come to hear the word of God, we should expect to hear the word of God. We should come to ask that question of one another when we're done. How did you get on under the preaching? How did that word that we just heard land on your heart? And I will confess, I am more quick to say the other question. I am more quick to say the question that Packer noted. Hey, how do you do? How do you do this morning? Was it a good sermon? What do you mean by that? Did he do a good job or was the truth proclaimed? Maybe we can ask each other better questions in light of what Packer says. How did what you just heard affect you? How were you confronted with what you heard from the word of God. Even in your personal Bible study, this, this isn't limited to sermons, that's just the one I'm zeroing on here. How are we listening? That's a question that we, at Mission Road Bible Church, where we are, are fed regularly, excellent preaching, and I'm not referring to myself, I'm referring to what I receive, okay? Where we are fed regularly, excellent truth from God's word. How are we listening? Are we listening to evaluate him or Whoever we're hearing the word from, if we're listening on MP3s, are we listening for our hearts? Just a few things I jotted down. We should not be listening simply to regurgitate an outline, right? Homiletics are to serve us the, the meat of the meal, the, the, as Rick says, the cup that we drink from. Not, that's not ultimately what we state as the, the point of a text necessarily. We should not be listening to only determine whether we agree. In fact, most sermons you will find much with which your flesh disagrees. Imagine if the Galatians were listening to Paul for only what they would agree with and they come to, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? No, they were confronted. They weren't listening to see whether they found something that they, they wanted to agree with. In the words of Packer, we should not be listening to measure the preacher's performance now, I want to say this. Look, our hearts burn within us in confirmation of glorious truths when we hear them, right? We're not a church that's huge on amens, but whenever Aaron is excited, sometimes he says amen. It, there's a resonation of truth in our hearts, and we can say amen to truth. We can confirm it. We can agree with it. We can affirm it as glorious and true. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But we must also remember that God's word is, is a scalpel, according to Hebrews 4. 
that it makes incisions. It cuts deep. It divides into areas of our heart that we can't even discern rightly apart from it. And that can be painful. So we need to listen knowing what God does with his word. We should be listening for the divinely intended meaning to be made clear. We should be listening for implications that flow from this meaning. We should be listening for the truth to confront error and bind our consciences. And we should be listening to be encouraged and comforted in our faith like Paul was doing for the Thessalonians. He was encouraging them. He wrote to, yes, exhort them, but also to encourage their faith and steadfastness. What about after the sermon? What do, what do we do? How can we make sure that we're rightly receiving the word as we go, as we're in conversations, even after the amen and final prayer? We have to remember that ultimately genuine receptivity includes life change. We have to look for and, and measure our sermon listening against spiritual fruit. We must wrestle with the implications of the preached word and seek application in our lives. Now, sometimes there's a few things that discourage us from rightly seeking application or we think about application wrongly and then we're discouraged and, and we, we wrestle with, how do we, how, do we, how do we do this? Sometimes one of the reasons is is that we fail to understand the link between doctrine and holiness. We hear a sermon about how great Jesus is, but we wonder why we didn't hear application. That's a false dichotomy. A sermon about how great Jesus is is applied in how we live because of how great our Savior is, right? Paul makes that connection when he says, you didn't learn Christ this way, talking about their manner of life, connecting it directly to the person of Christ whom they had been taught about Sometimes we underestimate the effort or the work that's required to rightly apply scripture. What do I mean by this? Well, there's a contrast between external effort and internal effort in applying scripture and, and pressing in for heart change. Just a couple examples. We've been hearing a lot lately about evangelism and missions. Now, if I asked all of you, you would say, what's an application of that? I need to preach the gospel and you would be right. But in that instance, that would not lead me to say, oh, application of that's easy. I know what to do externally. I go, I preach, that's easy. Well, there are actually heart motivations that are going to be pushed and prodded and cut and sliced that affect whether or not you're going to actually go and preach the gospel. Do you love your neighbor? Do you have a burden for the lost? Do you have God's heart for redemption and his work of regeneration in those who can't save themselves, those sort of things. So when we hear, again, great commission, we apply it. Well, there's heart work, not just work for our hands and feet. And sometimes we, we only focus on external action that we can immediately go and do and we say, that's application. It is, but also not at the expense of what has to happen in our hearts in response. Um, if, if I hear a sermon about how to love my wife We may make an application that says, well, buy her flowers on the way home. Help with some housework that you know will bless her soul. And those are applications, those are external, and that would be right, that would be an application. But that's not the only application, that's the external, that's the hands and the feet, what about the heart? Why am I not loving my wife? What sin is in my life? What bitterness 
is, is being cultivated instead of killed against my spouse, preventing me from loving as I'm commanded. Do you see the difference? We have to think on both levels. Sometimes we only put application in one or the other, and we need to think of both. The, 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 the marching orders that we get from a sermon that are easily viewed as external are not application, whereas the internal things are something more muddy. They're both application, and we need to think about both of those things. Maybe another challenge that can discourage us is we only think short-term about the application of Scripture. We only think short-term. I want you to imagine a scenario in which someone who was steeped in a homosexual lifestyle came into our church and was radically converted under the preaching that day of 1 Corinthians 6. Now, we could very easily say that an application from that sermon is turn from homosexuality. And you would be right if you said that. But if someone has staked their whole life on a false worldview, they have a community of people that, that, that they do life with, Maybe there's been decisions that have been made because of that sin that are complex. Homeownership. Maybe there's a marriage that a state granted somewhere. There are so many things. We think, well, application of 1 Corinthians 6 is easy. Turn from that sin. That's external. Just stop. That is the application, that that lifestyle is sinful and should be turned from, neglected, put to death. But how long? Do you think it would take for all the dominoes to line up, for all the motives that have to be adjusted and retweaked as the word of God comes to bear on that individual's life? There are gonna be so many things that aren't immediately apparent, even though at the surface level, this external application is, is very plain, 1 Corinthians 6. Application can take a long time. Look, there are short-term applications. If I was sitting under a sermon that said, love your wife, and I've just had got done talking unkindly that morning. I've got something I can quickly go and do, repent. But there's also a long term where the word of God working in the heart is giving new motives and new desires and killing the ones that stand in the way of Christ-likeness. Don't expect every sermon to be readily applied or applied in the same way. There's a difference between the universal principles that we communicate, that God intended to communicate through a particular passage, and the specific way that principle may implicate your life and apply to you. The example we often say is, if I preach that the, that the implication of Ephesians 5, love your wife, is go buy your wife chocolate, and she's allergic to chocolate, then you're not loving your wife. That's a bad application. That's specific. That's for you to work out. The implication of how you love your wife, though, is more general. Not every sermon will apply to each of us individually in the same way. When we receive the word of God, we have to have that in mind. We need to understand that we have some work to do. Listen, speaking of the work that we have to do after we hear a sermon, listen to this question. This is question 160 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks this, what is required of those that hear the word preached? The answer, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, that they examine what they hear by the scriptures, that they receive the truth with faith, 
love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, that they meditate and confer on it, that they hide it in their hearts, and that they bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. The Thessalonians gave evidence that they had rightly received the word of God as it really is because it, was, it showed up in their life. Yes, they appraised it rightly as the word. They received it, they welcomed it. And the proof of that was that it changed their life. They gave evidence of that appraisal in their lives. We began with a little anecdote from Churchill. And his directives were delivered at a time when freedom hung in the balance. I've talked with, I think it was Rick, it it was interesting, we were talking one time about Churchill and he said, thanks to him, we all don't have German accents now. That's not anything against German accents, it's a figure of speech to indicate. We have much to be thankful for that he was at the helm in a time when freedom hung in the balance. And wartime instructions from the prime minister were a matter of first importance and so he expected them to be received as such. You can see where this is going. The reception of God's word is eternally significant. Eternally significant. And it may sound cheesy, but I was struck by this. How fitting, how fitting are Churchill's words in response to what we hear when we hear the word of God? Action this day, right? Action this day. May we help one another evaluate that. Well, may we come alongside one another and say, by the grace of Christ, action this day in response to scripture. Are we receiving the word rightly? And if so, are we looking at measurable spiritual fruit, no matter how small, no matter how long, as evidence that the sermons that we're taking in, that the truth we're constantly putting ourselves in the way of is meeting a right reception in our hearts. Let's pray.